The views, opinions, and content of the show hosts and their guests appearing on America's Web Radio are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the station. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to another episode of The Doctor's Lounge. You're listening to Dr. Scott Barber on America's Web Radio. And today we're going to discuss the question of what happened to the doctor-patient relationship. Now, I want to start today's show off by apologizing for last time's show. Uh, I listened to it myself, and I realized that I really didn't connect the dots for you. And one of my goals has always been to try and take my experience in medicine and try to demonstrate to you guys why socialized medicine is just an epic fail and why free market medicine is the only way for us to get quality medicine at a low cost with tons of options and the highest possible quality. Now, this is this is true of capitalism. We know that the system of capitalism is the only system that is credited with bringing up mass peoples out of poverty and giving them opportunity and wealth and the ability to uh, live their lives and to raise themselves up. And the, the same is true for health care. And what we've seen over the course of my career, it's been going on for much longer than that, but I've certainly been witness over my almost 30 years in medicine to the complete collapse of the healthcare system. And what we've seen now is complete control of the healthcare system because of the takeover by the state, largely through Medicare and Medicaid, which set up the rules governing medicine. They control basically the supply of doctors, supply of your health care. And now we're increasingly seeing how doctors have very little control over their ability to deliver health care to you. And as a result, you're getting stuck with terrible health care and very limited choices. And as somebody who's really dedicated my life to trying to, to try to deliver the best possible health care, I've been in the game for a long time. I have people reaching out to me all the time, asking me to help them with problems that aren't even necessarily orthopedic related, but they know that I will take the time to do research and to try and figure things out and try to help them. Now, I listened to my last uh, podcast and I realized that I was a little bit all over the place. And I want to try, I've been thinking about nothing else for the last two weeks and I've really been trying to think of ways to demonstrate the virtues of free market health care and the horrors of socialized medicine. And I think I've got uh, some better ideas. I'm going to try and keep it simple. Um, <clears throat> but as you know, I tend to bop all over the place as things pop into my head. One of the things that I was trying to talk about last time, this is kind of the other thing too. I never, I, I'm not a podcaster. I'm not an entertainer. I'm not you know, I'm not looking to to make a living uh, being a talking head on a TV show or anything like that. I just want to share uh, what I really want to do is I want to practice healthcare in a free market system because it allows me to use my skills to the best of my ability to help other people. And that's really my passion. And so everything I do, whether it's running a business or doing this podcast or anything else, is really designed to try and help me better serve my patients. And so... When I started thinking about how I built my practice, I think way back to my days in college, it's you know been a lot of things of course over the course of my life. My father was a huge influence on me, teaching me 
uh, morals and virtues and how to be successful and and how to accept the gifts that God gave me and uh, try to make the most of them. But one of the greatest mentors I ever had was my rugby coach, Jack Clark, the great Jack Clark. Now, Jack Clark, I believe, is the winningest coach in all of sports history. He was my coach in rugby at the University of California, Berkeley. He's won countless national championships. Uh, many of his players are All-American. Um, I'm one of them. Uh, he has many, many players who've played on the United States national team, who've played professionally. And he himself was a fantastic player. I mean, this guy played in the NFL. He was on the U.S. national team in rugby. I want to say he was one of the first Americans ever to be selected to the World 15, which is like the world's 15 best rugby players. I mean, this guy was six foot five, 280 pounds of just pure athlete. But more importantly, he was a great coach and a great mentor, so much so that um, I still keep in contact with my teammates from uh, my California rugby days. And this coming May will be the 35th anniversary of our 1988 national championship victory over Dartmouth at uh, Pebble Beach. And I still keep in touch with my rugby teammates We've been there for each other over the years, and it's really wonderful to see how their lives have unfolded and to be there. And one of my teammates and I got in a in an argument about something. It's a private nature, but he kind of texted me, and 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 he had um, he was angry with me, and I was sort of angry with him, and we argued back and forth. We eventually hugged it out, and we kissed, and we made up. But one of the things he said to me was. Coach Clark taught you better than that. <laughs> and I remember thinking, here I am, a 56-year-old person. I'm a grown man with children of my own. And we still look to Coach Clark as our teacher, our mentor, our leader. And we try to live up to his ideals as children to their parents. We were always craving his approval. And one of the most important things that Coach Clark taught us is that people respond to carrot and stick. Everybody does. We all respond to carrot and stick. We need something to motivate us, and we need negative reinforcement for things that we don't want to do. And one of the things that Coach Clark was so great at was understanding that people require different, amount, different amounts of carrot and different amounts of stick to be motivated. And there were some players who responded very poorly to praise. If you praise them, uh, they would get lazy and stop working, and so they needed a little bit of stick. You know, they needed a little kick in the pants to get them motivated to do things. There were other players that didn't respond very well to stick. They would get uh, very closed down. And in a world where you're trying to motivate people as a leader, it's very important to understand carrot and stick. Now, last week when I was talking about doctors and and salaries and things of this nature, I think it got... I got confusing to you guys in the sense that people are always saying, what, is it always about money? What are you doctors just about money? And it got me to thinking, I'm not an entertainer here, so I'm not going to couch things just to make it sound better on a, on a podcast or on a TV show. I'm sharing with you my real thoughts, my real opinions, and my real view on things. And one of the things I'm going to tell you is that doctors and nurses are people too. We have good days, we have bad days. Uh, we're affected by the same 
uh, things that everybody else out there is affected by. We get frustrated. We get angry. We have negative feelings towards certain patients. We have positive feelings towards other patients. We have all of the seven deadly sins that other people have, pride and gluttony and sloth. And we're trying to work to be better people. Now, the reason that healthcare providers are good at what they do has to do with the implementation of carrot and stick. And the importance of this in free market medicine, the carrot and stick comes from the patient. And that is the doctor-patient relationship. When a doctor interacts with the patient, their fidelity is to that patient and not to the state. Now, in a socialized medicine setting, the the fidelity of the physician is to the state. Whether they want it to be or not, it just is. The state sets the rules, and if you violate those rules, you're going to be you're going to be in big trouble. And as a result, you eventually change the behavior of doctors and nurses, and you get crappy healthcare. And I'm going to explain to you exactly how this happens. We're seeing it happen right now. One of the first things we have to understand about science and medicine is, number one, the science is never settled. And the only way that we move forward in science is by questioning everything. And we should never be silencing other other professionals who are offering their opinions, making their assessments, and coming up with different ideas that challenge the orthodoxy of the state or of medicine, we're supposed to be able to debate and argue. And in this current age, we're not able to do that. If people step out of line or if they go against the government-approved orthodoxy, they're threatened by their state medical boards, Uh, their licenses are threatened, and they're basically attacked and labeled things like anti-vaxxer, anti-science, and it has a very chilling effect on providers, uh, doctors, nurses who decide to themselves, you know what, this is just not even worth it. I'm just going to go along to get along. And the victims in that system are the patients. Now, there's a doctor up in Minnesota, Dr. Jensen, and I don't know him personally, but I've been watching his work on on social media and Dr. Jensen is a physician up in Minnesota. He's won many awards over the years for being a fantastic doctor. And he had some opinions regarding COVID and and the way to treat uh, COVID that went against the orthodoxy. And uh, he was a medical doctor in Chaska, Minnesota. He was in the Minnesota Senate from 2017 to 2021. And he put out some medical opinions that were skeptical of Minnesota's coronavirus response. And he has been investigated four times and never been punished, never been reprimanded. But what they discovered was that he prescribed ivermectin to a patient. And now the board, the medical board, so the government body, has demanded to look at the medical records of his most recent three to five patients for which he prescribed ivermectin. Now, we're not going to get into all of that 
what he did and all that. The point is, you got a person who's offering medical opinions, who's educated, accomplished, whether you agree with them or not, whether you like them or not, to censor him, to stamp him down, to punish him, and to prevent him from sharing his information is a disservice to medicine, and it's a disservice to the patients. Many of you may be aware, Dr. Malone, recently on Joe Rogan's podcast discussing all of his opinions and thoughts and understandings of the uh, pandemic. And I want to say Joe Rogan's podcast had something like 40 million views. I mean, this thing is really, really popular. Dr. Malone is a Harvard-trained professor. He's credited with inventing the mRNA technology of these coronavirus vaccines. I happen to have been following him for the last few years. I agree with a lot of what he says. I certainly agree that his opinion should be out in the public square, and he's been completely taken down. Big Tech has just removed that podcast, and there are places where you can get go, go get the Joe Rogan podcast with Dr. Malone. But the point I'm trying to make is you have a scientist out there who is trying to share information, and the state doesn't like it, and so they're shutting it down. And this is a problem. Um, when we just look at the delivery of health care, it's not just, you know, my, my beef with socialized medicine versus free market medicine is not just about the point of service, meaning because you're my patient and I'm, I have a doctor-patient relationship in a free market system and my fidelity is to you. It's not just that I will give you better care than in a socialized system where my fidelity is to the is to the hospital, and since the hospital is controlled by the state, it's basically you're controlled by the state. I don't really have an allegiance to the patient. That affects my quality of care, but it's more importantly, it affects what that care is. And let me explain. Now, Louis Pasteur is a very famous doctor, and he's credited with the development of antiseptic medicine. Now, he lived from 1827 to 1912, and he is widely acknowledged as the father of antiseptic surgery. His contributions paved the way for safer medical procedures. His introduction of antisepsis dramatically decreased deaths from childbirth and from surgery, and uh, he basically created the basis of uh, hygienic uh, surgery and medicine to this day. Now, it took a long time for people to accept the findings of Lister's uh, research. A lot of them were incredulous at the thought that organisms too small to be seen were causing all these post-operative deaths. Some found it tiring to have to go through these long sterilization processes before performing an operation and Although some of them tried Lister's methods, a majority of them did it incorrectly, and their efforts proved to be useless. He was a, a professor of clinical surgery at Edinburgh, and he continued to modify his system to achieve better results despite all of the negative feedback. It took 12 long years before Lister's system gained widespread accept acceptance. Those who emulated Lister's example in Munich gained astounding success with the death rate caused by infection after surgery dropping from 80% to almost zero. The English doctors were among the last to accept the brilliance of Lister's methods, 
only winning them over when he was appointed professor of surgery in London's King College in 1877. By 1879, his findings had grew, had gained widespread ex, uh, acceptance. Now, why do I share you this uh, this story about uh, Pasteur? I mean, about Listor. Um, Joseph Lister, why, don't, why am I sharing you this story uh, about him? I'm trying to show you that there was a time when a person came along with ideas that went against the orthodoxy of the institution of medicine because of the failings of doctors. And I'm just telling you flat out, as a physician and a surgeon, I have developed ways of doing things that I'm very comfortable with. I The way I scrub, the tools I use, how I do my surgery, the suture I use to close, the, all of these things that I do, the approaches to do certain procedures. Over time, I have developed an expertise and a comfort with it. The last thing that I want to do is have somebody come in and say, hey, you got to do that differently. If they come in and they say, hey, listen, the way you're doing it, the way you're comfortable doing it, it no longer has been shown to be the best way. There's another better way, but it's going to require you to learn, to practice, maybe to read, and to redo the way you do things in order to give your patients a better outcome. There's naturally, because I'm a human being, there's going to be a resistance to that. If I had any political power over Joseph Listor, I would be using that political power to say, hey, man, let's shut this guy down. He's trying to push all these crazy anti-science you know, antiseptic surgery policies and procedures. This is crazy. We've got to shut them down. We're seeing it happen today with the shutting down of different opinions, with the cancel of doctors and nurses and other healthcare professionals that are offering their experience. And you're creating a system where the patient suffers because doctors are afraid to speak up. They're afraid to investigate certain things. And over time, people tend to just go along to get along. Now, I've shared with you guys my story a million times of when I was working at the VA during residency as a third year and a fifth year resident. We get to go across the street and take care of the VA. It was a fantastic time during residency because we had a lot of responsibility and we got to really engage in orthopedics and take care of all these patients. And one of the first things we noted was that the efficiency of the VA was very poor, mostly because people just refused to do their jobs. And so we were unable to get very many cases done because it took so long to get the patients from pre-op down to the operating room. It took so long to clean the room up and get the patients to post-op and then to get them out so that we could do the next patient. And so my partner and I kind of realized, hey, we could just do this ourselves and we will increase the efficiency of the hospital. And that's exactly what we did. We would go up to the pre-op area. We'd bring the patients down, put them on the operating table, do the surgery. I would take that patient, put them on the, the gurney and bring them to the recovery room. I would go back to the operating room. We would mop the floor and clean the beds and turn the room over is what we call it to get it ready for the next patient. And then we would go upstairs and we would get the next patient and we would bring them down and, and do the next procedure. And what we did was triple the output of the hospital, at least in the orthopedic department where we were working. Now, three weeks or so go by, we get a message from uh, the the head of the uh, hospital. He wants to see us in his office. And I can remember my buddy Lex and I getting in the elevator. We're high-fiving each other, and we're sitting there 
thinking that we're probably going to get medals of freedom that we're you know they'll be making bronze statues of us that they're going to put in the lobby for being these great doctors and for providing such great service to the patients and of course that's not what he was calling us to his office about what he wanted to call us to his office about was stop doing what we're doing he basically threatened us and said that if we did not stop doing what we were doing meaning doing all this work and and increasing the output that he was going to make sure that we never got the fellowships that we wanted to do and i was astonished why is this happening and the reason is because other employees working at the va didn't like the work we were creating if i went and did surgery on a patient and i brought the patient to the recovery room well now that meant all the people in the recovery room have to do work and they didn't want to do it and the system is basically a socialized medicine system where the state has total control and patients have almost no control that we were forced to get in line. And so I often said we spent the rest of that rotation in the call room watching TV. I remember during that period, that two-month period, uh, Rudy, the movie Rudy about the Notre Dame football player was on the VA cable system and we just kept watching that movie over and over again. And it was a really horrifying lesson for me to understand how a bureaucracy can basically prevent quality health care from being delivered and in the end the patients suffer now it's not just the service so it's not just that your your procedure or, or your care is being delayed it's not just that you're not getting a friendly face to offer you health care it's more than that it's the actual care itself changes and it changes because doctors are are brutalized with all of the tools that a bureaucracy can use to punish people. Now, the first thing is we got the state that can control your behavior by using these medical boards that are usually populated by like-minded people um, to to threaten your license and your ability to be a doctor unless you get in line with their agenda. Now, I know that sounds a bit crazy, um, but I just happened to come across um, <clears throat> an organization called White Coats for Black Lives. It's a national organization of medical students published a statement called Vision and Values. The dominant medical practice in the United States has been built on the dehumanization and exploitation of black people. The document read, and white coats for black lives exist to rid the medical system of this pervasive racism. And in order to do this, we're going to have to dismantle anti-black racism, dismantle white supremacy, capitalism, imperialism, colonialism, and the cis-heteropatriarchy. We're going to also have to dismantle fat phobia and we're going to have to embrace black queer feminist praxis and the unlearning of toxic medical knowledge now you may say to yourself scott why are you reading me this this is an organization of medical students that has 70 chapters across the country and is actually has enough political power to influence the curriculum at medical schools <clears throat> now it doesn't even matter what I read. It doesn't matter if you agree or disagree with any of that stuff. The point is that is a political agenda. 
that you may not agree with. I know I don't agree with any of that stuff because at the end of the day, when I'm seeing my doctor, I just want to make sure they know the medicine and they know how to take care of me. I don't really care about the politics of the world, but that is what is seeping into our medical system. It's not even seeping into it. It is already there. Listen, for many years, I thought all I had to do was win the argument. I thought all I had to do was convince people the virtues of free market medicine and the horrors of socialized medicine. And what I've learned is it's already happened. We are already there. And unless we make active changes to change our system, we're never going to be able to get it back. And it's going to be um, it's going to be a tough haul. Now, I remember many years ago, my mother was a trauma nurse and she was a very good nurse uh, she trained at Mass General. She went to a four-year program. She was very proud of her education. And she would come home from work, and she would complain that that as time went on and nursing, and this is going to be because of government penetration, made nursing a more difficult profession, more restrictions on how they could behave, more restrictions on the way you could be compensated. So a good nurse gets paid the same as a bad nurse. And when you started doing that, then quality people started looking at nursing school and saying to themselves, I have to go through all this training and this is what being a nurse looks like. I choose not to do that. And so there was a nursing shortage. So what they did was they started bringing people in who were lesser trained. They decreased the amount of training that you need. And that also decreased the quality of candidate. Now you get these nurses coming onto the floor that are less well-educated and less capable. And so I can, I've experienced this in my own life. As a physician, you go onto the floor and you see the nurse who knows what they're doing. So you immediately go to that nurse. Hey, listen, I need your help with my patients. I need this, that, and the other. And most of the time, nurses are great. But at the end of the day, these quality nurses are saying to themselves, my reward for being good at my job is that I get all the work to do because all the doctors come to me and ask me to do everything. And the pac- the nurses who are not very good at their job, they're, they get paid the same as me. And as a reward, nobody ever asked them to do anything because they're not capable. It was, I listened to my mother talk about this when I was growing up and I never really understand it until I became the doctor looking for those nurses who knew what they were doing and, you know, trying to avoid the nurses who didn't. And the same thing has happened with physicians. The government penetration and the bureaucracy got more and more involved in controlling the way a doctor could practice. And by, you know, basically taking over the healthcare system, they limit the free thought of a doctor. Now, for me, one of the biggest things about being a doctor was I wanted to be the captain of the ship. I wanted to be leading leading the effort to take care of my patients. I didn't want to be in a system where somebody's telling me what to do. I went to school for a really long time, and I spent many, many hours studying and learning my craft and practicing. And there are very few people who can tell me what to do right now. I mean, in a way, nobody can. Uh, there are very few people who can coach me on what to do. There's there's lots of people who can tell me what to do, but it's usually not based in medicine and it's not based in what's in the best interest of the patient it's based in what the interests of the state are and those are very different things and we're going to talk a little bit more about that when we come back from this break you're listening to dr scott barber on the doctor's lounge you're listening to me on america's web radio we'll be right back 
Do you love classic and special interest cars? If so, listen to our podcast every Saturday from 9 a.m. to 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time here on America's Web Radio. Or find us on your favorite podcast site, iTunes, Spotify, or any of the others out there. We'll talk about classic cars. We'll talk to car guys. We'll talk to clubs that are here at our facility here in Classic Auto Mall. And we'll also talk about Classic Auto Mall and how we can help you sell your classic or special interest car. So give us a listen every Saturday morning from 9 a.m. to 10 a.m. Thanks. If you have lost a loved one and were left with a firearms collection and are not sure how to dispose of them safely, or you may have firearms you no longer want, this message is for you. I am a licensed FFL firearms dealer in the state of Florida, specializing in estate firearm purchases. It is very important that all firearm transactions be handled according to state and federal laws. You can contact me for information at firearmliquidationservice at outlook.com, or you can call or text me at 407-921-8100-247 and ask for James. Again, for information contact me at firearmliquidationservice at outlook.com, or call or text me at 407-921-8100. All communications are strictly confidential. Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Have you ever wondered what doctors talk about amongst themselves? If you do, join us on The Doctor's Lounge and hear the doctor's conversations amongst themselves. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. Hey, folks, this is Victor with the On Point with Victor show. Make sure you listen every Tuesday, 1 to 2, only right here on America's Web Radio, the On Point with Victor show. Remember, folks, I'm not angry. I'm just right. And you can find out why every Tuesday from 1 to 2, the On Point with Victor show, only right here on America's Web Radio. The views, opinions, and content of the show hosts and their guests appearing on America's Web Radio are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the station. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back, everybody, to the Doctor's Lounge. You're listening to Dr. Scott Barber on America's Web Radio. And today we are trying to answer the question, what happened to the doctor-patient relationship? I've been talking about how the intrusion of the state into healthcare affects the doctor-patient relationship, changes the quality of your medicine, and actually changes the doctor-patient relationship. And it's very important for you folks to understand that in a free market healthcare system where we have a traditional doctor-patient relationship, as a physician, my fidelity is to my patient. In a socialized medicine setting where my fidelity is to my employer, which is the hospital system, which is primarily controlled by the state. The mechanism the state controls hospital systems is through control with funds via Medicare and Medicaid. They ostensibly control the way doctors practice, and they can tell you what to do and what not to do. And as a result, the patients are often negatively impacted. I would argue almost always negatively impacted. Listen, The crux of understanding the way the world works is going back to my rugby coach, Coach Clark, who talked about carrot and stick. Everybody on this planet functions in a a relationship with carrot and stick, meaning we do things that we are incentivized to do and we don't do things that we are disincentivized to do. And the bureaucracy is very good at putting up roadblocks that alter healthcare. Now, When I see a patient, my fidelity is to that patient, and I can offer 
options, treatment options. I can talk to them about what their injury is or what their disease is, and I can come up with medical solutions. And there's the way the, the control of that is through cost. If I offer you a treatment option and it's a reasonable cost, you'll do it. If it's a massive cost, you won't do it. And I always use the example, do you really want this water? And a patient might say, yeah, I'd love this water. Okay, it's $500. And you might say to yourself, man, I'm thirsty, but $500 for this bottle of water, I think I'll pass. What the government does is they tell you, hey, you want this water? And the patient says, ah, I don't know. Well, don't worry, it's free. They give you the water. And what they do is they go take $500 out of the tax base, and then they spread it among their friends at the water company. You just paid $500 for that water, but you didn't do it at the point of service, so it didn't feel like it. And the other thing that the state likes to do is if you can't afford the $500 for that water, well, then I'll just take the $500 from somebody else who's not even here at the time. But I'm getting the $500 for that water. That is what's happening with your health care. And you might say, well, that's that's awesome. That's you know that means that rich people are paying for the health care of poor people. No, that's not what it means. As socialized medicine gains power and control, the bureaucracy grows. The delivery of health care diminishes until you're left with a situation like we have at the VA, where virtually the only health care they provide, and I'm being hyperbolic, but we used to joke, the only thing you do at the VA is prescribe medication. There's nothing else to do. There's very limited ability to provide procedures. Um, and, you know, I, I have to make sure I'm not too hyperbolic on this show. Obviously, there are people who hate me out there who are always trying to silence me by taking things I say out of context or uh, trying to take something I'm saying sarcastically or hyperbolically and trying to insinuate that I'm a kook. Uh, the point is your options for various types of health care is very limited in a socialized system, and it's maximized in a free market system. And I'm going to give you an example. We talked about this last time. The premier of Newfoundland uh, in the early 2000s during the heated uh, Obamacare debates, he was the premier of Newfoundland. He had a heart issue uh, that was uh, that required a surgery that was not offered in Canada, and so he flew to Miami to have that procedure done. And people confronted him about his hypocrisy here you are promoting socialized medicine in Canada, but when it comes down to your own health, you end up flying to Miami to get this procedure that's not even offered in Canada. And his retort was, well, it's my health. I can do what I want, which is just amazing to me how these elitist people are always thinking like that. They, they The elites, they get everything they want, which is always what happens in a socialized system. The connected, the powerful get the care. Uh, and the peasants are left with nothing. The um, I had a patient recently who was in the hospital. And he had a very painful injury. It was very complicated. Uh, he was very, very sick. And I, ha I had to admit him to the hospital. He needed nutritional support. And I needed tools. And I needed round-the-clock evaluation of this patient. And he was in a lot of pain. And typically, as a physician, when patients are in pain, we'll write, uh, pain medicine and we'll write it every four to six hours, meaning the earliest they can get the medicine is in four hours, um, but it's you can give it in four to six hour intervals. Now, the point of four to six hours is when the patient needs it, meaning if it's four hours and the patient says, hey man, my pain is really bad, I would like my next order, that's when you give it to him at four hours. Well, this patient was complaining to the nurse that he was in pain and the nurse yelled back at him, 
I have six hours to get you your medicine. So she had changed the meaning of Q four to six hours or give this medicine every four to six four to six hours to it's not when you need it, it's when I feel like getting it. And I have up to six hours to get your medicine. And even if you're in pain at four hours, you can sit there in pain for two more hours and I'll get it to you at six hours by the letter of the law. And this just goes to show you that the whole meaning of medicine just completely changes. And you might say to yourself, well, why, why didn't we just complain about that nurse? Who am I going to complain to? There, the nursing, there's a nursing shortage out there. The, the, the administration doesn't care about that. There is nobody to complain to about these things. Now, listen, I always have to be careful about being literal. It's not that there aren't normal people, what I consider to be normal people. It's not that there aren't generous people. It's not that there aren't, um, you know, healers out there that really want to do the right thing for their patient. There are. It's just the system traps them. It beats them down and it prevents them from being able to deliver the best possible care. We're seeing the same thing in the public school systems with the teachers unions. Many teachers out there are amazing and fantastic. The problem is the teachers unions are controlling how they behave. And as a result, our students are the people who are suffering. Now, the state gets control of your health care. And we saw with Governor Ron DeSantis. Now, monoclonal antibodies for the treatment of COVID have been largely considered very effective treatment. We know high profile people like uh Donald Trump, Joe Rogan, uh, Dan Bongino, who got sick with COVID, were treated with monoclonal antibodies, and they did very well. Now, I'm not here to argue whether or not monoclonal antibodies work or not, but they're considered to be effective. I think I can say that out loud without anybody threatening my medical license. I don't know. I'll have to wait and see. But I believe people consider monoclonal antibodies to be effective treatment for uh, COVID, uh, we saw Governor DeSantis was actually having success down in Florida with d- delivering monoclonal antibodies. And Joe Biden basically and the and the federal government took over the control of the monoclonal antibodies. And we saw here in the New York Post on January 1st, 2022. Sorry. Uh, sorry, Ron DeSantis. Um, was delivering the monoclonal antibodies to patients in Florida. The federal government took control of the monoclonal antibodies. DeSantis, who already had a program in in place, had asked the government for 40,000 doses, and Joe Biden gave him 12,000 doses. Now, Governor DeSantis was pointing out that the residents, that the population of Florida is 25 million. He also pointed out that New York got twice as many doses as Florida did, and they have millions fewer citizens. Now, one could argue, and I would, that that was politically motivated. You have the state that is in control of health care. You have a state that is vested in demonstrating that the way red states are handling the COVID academ- uh, epidemic is is not as good as the way blue states are doing it and that they want to cause problems for red states and they want to favor blue states. Now, listen, it doesn't even matter if you buy into that. The point is the federal government is making decisions about health care 
that affects you at the point of service. And no matter how good your doctor is, how virtuous your doctor is, how much your doctor wants to help, they simply can't get a hold of this because the state is involved. Now, the New York Post had an article on January 1st, 2022. New York City will consider race when distributing life-saving COVID treatments. It was noted on the Department of Health and Mental Hygiene website Guidance applies to distribution of monoclonal antibodies and oral antivirals. Now, listen, this is just not appropriate in healthcare. They're going to be considering things that have nothing to do with the doctor patient relationship. When I have a patient in front of me as a physician, my oath is to do no harm, my Hippocratic oath. <clears throat> I don't care what race they are, what creed, what color, what gender, what, you know, sexual, all that stuff. I don't care about any of that. My goal is to do my very best to get them better. And I know the vast, vast, vast majority of doctors feel the same. And to go in here and to add this sort of draconian, racist consideration when figuring out how we're delivering health care is unbelievable. Now... We've also seen that uh, there's a lot of places that are talking about restricting medical care to unvaccinated. The state wants you to be vaccinated. If you're not vaccinated, they're, they're going to restrict health care. I mean, we've seen this all over the news. This is utterly insane and ridiculous to me. I cannot fathom the concept that we would restrict health care to patients based on their life's decisions. I mean, one of the very first things I noted when I got to medical school was we used to have a little saying, when am I going to get to see a Kaiser Fleischer ring? Now, there's a disease of copper transport um, that, uh, you know, your body doesn't have a protein to be able to transport copper. And so copper will build up in your eyes, in your iris and create a blue hue. And it's called a Kaiser Fleischer ring. And, you know, as medical students, as we were reading about all of these different things um, in in medicine, I mean, just the amazing the way the body works and all the different pathological conditions. And you're you know, you're reading those first two years were just, you know, 12 hours a day just reading. You're in the classroom about all these incredible physiological systems and all these disease processes. And I can just remember my classmates and I just dying to get out on the floors and wanting to go and, you know, be Sherlock Holmes and do the very best examination. We could do the very take the very best histories figure out what's going on with these patients and coming up with these amazing diagnoses. And what you find out very quickly in medicine is that the vast majority of patients are um, emphysema from smoking, diabetes uncontrolled, heart disease from bad life changes and smoking. Um, There's a lot of uh, gang violence. Um, and, And so basically what you're seeing is the vast majority of patients, the vast majority of patients are patients that are in the hospital because of bad life choices. And you know what never once creeped into our thought process? Let's just withdraw care from people who are making bad life decisions. I remember one time, one of the first times I was in the hospital working overnight in the trauma center, they brought a patient in with uh, emphysema. He's a cigarette smoker. 
and he had a tracheostomy, you know, a little hole in his trachea here, so he was breathing, uh, having to do with throat cancer and all this kind of stuff from smoking. And he came in short of breath by ambulance again. This patient was what we call a frequent flyer, meaning he came to the hospital all the time because he was always smoking and not taking care of himself. He would always get into a respiratory crisis, call the ambulance and be taken to the hospital, and we would treat him. Now, I remember one time my boss is like, hey, Scott, where did that patient go? And I, you know, I'm looking around the trauma center and I'm like, where did he go? I went out onto the landing, and as soon as we gave him all the nebulizers and things to open up his lungs and create the ability for him to be able to breathe again, he immediately went out onto the landing, and he was smoking his cigarette through his tracheostomy. And I just remember sitting there jaw open about what kind of Groundhog Day are we experiencing here? Now, this person, I don't know anything about them other than that. I've since learned that you know, everybody on this earth has a cross to bear. We're all suffering from something. And my job is to help people, not to judge people. I made this I made this promise to myself a long time ago that when somebody was in front of me, no matter what, I was going to do my best to take care of them. And I wasn't going to make moral judgments about their choices in life that would affect whether or not I deliver them care. And I'm not special in that way. All doctors are like that. And then we come to 2020 and 2021, and now we're talking about withdrawing care in the unvaccinated. This is a state that has run amok. They have completely lost their whole concept of what medicine is all about. And they are putting up these roadblocks, preventing doctors trying to deliver health care to their patients. And it's horrifying. Now, I was, I'm going to share with you this next story, and I was thinking about, should I open the show with this? Should I wait a bit? And I decided I want to get into it a little bit to kind of get everybody thinking about how socialized medicine ne- negatively impacts the doctor-patient relationship. I wanted you guys to understand how doctors are human beings. Um, even the best doctors, you know, there's a limit to how much you'll do. I mean, I feel like I do a lot of charity, but... You know, you could always do one more. You could always stay another hour. At some point, you have to shut it off and go home. And I remember one time when I was uh, early in my career, I had a patient who I was not on call, uh, but the patient liked me from a previous interaction. They broke their hip, and they were at the hospital with a broken hip, and they wanted me to do it. And so I just walked in the door. My daughters were young at the time, and I got the call. And, you know, the patient's like begging me, please come do my surgery. And, of course, I was going to go do it. And I turned around and I walked out and my daughter ran up and she grabbed my leg. And she goes, Daddy, please don't go. And I remember looking at my wife and going, you know, I wish people could see this. All of these people out there who make this argument that healthcare is a right, is a basic human right, don't understand that when you say healthcare is a basic human right for people, you're basically conferring an obligation on somebody else. That means you're telling me I have to leave my daughter and go help somebody. Now, I did leave my daughter and I went to help somebody, but the reason I did it is because I had a doctor-patient relationship with this patient, and in the end, that was going to benefit my practice, the fact that this patient would go out and tell other people that I was a good doctor and that you should go see this person. There was a benefit there for me. There was carrot and stick for me, carrot and stick for the patient, and that's the appropriate motivation. 
if the government puts a gun to my head and just, can I say that? Am I going to get banned for using the metaphor of gun to my head? If the, the government puts thumb screws, maybe that's a better one, puts thumb screws on me and tells me I have to do it, that is not a very motivating way to get people to do things, and they won't do it. Now, I have been watching this happen for years and for years and for years. I told you the story last time I had the young patient that had the shoulder dislocation, had some problems with the nerves in their hand. Because brain tumor is so incredibly rare, I thought that it was the shoulder dislocating and hitting on the nerves in the brachial plexus in the shoulder that was causing the problems in his hand. But in the back of my head, the little devil was telling me, make sure it's not a brain tumor. And so in order to do that, I sent the patient to a neurologist. A neurologist who had one job should have understood the only reason I'm sending that patient there is to say, tell me he doesn't have a brain tumor. Now, I hope that's not too unclear for you guys, but when you have somebody who has a neurologic issue and somebody, a doctor, refers to a neurologist for that neurologic issue, that's what we're talking about, brain tumor. Tell me it's not that. That's all I wanted to know. So sure enough, the the neurologist um, sends me back a report that says, nope, not a brain tumor. It's exactly what you think it is, this shoulder subluxing. So I went and I fixed his shoulder, and then guess what the patient had? They had a brain tumor, and he's dead now. Now, thankfully... Whether or not that radio or whether or not that neurologist had picked up on the fact that he had a brain tumor would not have changed this patient's outcome. He had a glioblastoma multiforme that that is you know, very dangerous disease and and has a very very high mortality rate. But what it demonstrated was how the government intervention and control of healthcare led this person, this doctor, to make a lazy analysis and basically miss something that's easy. Now listen, I could have worked this thing up myself, and I should have, and I will in the future. I'll never trust another based on that experience, which, by the way, we call that the practice of medicine. You have experiences, and when things don't go well, you make adjustments and you change things so that you can deliver better care to the next patient. That's what we call the practice of medicine. But this doctor clearly knew how to work this thing up and they just didn't because they're lazy and the reason they didn't do it is because government has gotten so involved in controlling healthcare and the decision making and what you can and can't do and all that that certain specialties like neurology are very much dependent on that and they just kind of stopped doing doctoring because it's not worth it they don't get a return on their investment and so they get lazy and you end up getting a problem like that. Now, there's another thing that people need to understand about the doctor-patient relationship. As a doctor, I am a human being, meaning I have certain things I don't like to do. I hate dictating. Anybody knows you who knows me will tell you I'm always behind on my dictations. I can't stand it. Now, it's necessary. It has to be done, but I can't stand it. And the reason that I do it is because I'll get in big trouble if I don't do it. And so I force myself uh, to do it through stick. And I have actually been in trouble in residency for not doing my notes. And, and it's something that I struggle with and I'm working on it. But there are other things that doctors avoid. Long conversations with um, elderly patients who um, 
who are you know getting up there in years and they're they're not as sharp as somebody younger that can be a painful experience for a doctor and i you know we used to joke about it you know you get an older patient who's whose memory is not quite there and they'll be telling you a story and you know they'll say well you know i i hurt myself back in uh 1910 wait was that 1911 no no it was 1910 and you're sitting here trying to take the history and you're telling yourself my god i got a hundred other patients to see i can't sit here and listen to it and so we used to give the low person on the totem pole, anybody who was elderly and was going to be a difficult history, we'd send the person on, low person on the totem pole. Now, that's human nature. That's doctors not wanting to do certain things because they're human beings. And one of the other things that doctors like to avoid if they can't, this the other thing is in a socialized medicine system where the doctor has no relationship with the patient, they're simply not going to do it. And I know most of you, if you've accessed the current healthcare system, you know that you don't really get to see the doctor very often. You're not going to get their attention for very long, even if you do. Um, and there's a reason behind that, because there's no negative consequence for the doctors in a socialized medicine setting for not sitting down and giving the doctor patient relationship. One of the other things that doctors hate doing is talking about bad news. Uh, I always tell people one of the reasons I went into orthopedics is I do not have the temperament to talk about life and death issues with patients. It's soul-sucking to me. I don't have this ability, and I know I've shared with you the story of uh, the class I had in death and dying when I was in medical school, and there was a doctor who we used to have this class death and dying where people who experience death either the spouse or a child or they're going through a mortal sickness would come in and lecture the the medical class on all the aspects of it so that we could learn about how to talk to people and what was important and everything and this man came and he talked about his 10 year old son dying of cancer over a long period of time and he talked, and the doctor that was his son's doctor was sitting there with him, and just all of the amazing support that this doctor provided this man while his 10-year-old son was dying of cancer was unbelievable. And I remember thinking, I don't have that. Whatever that gift is, I don't have it. And thank God there are people out there that do have it. But let me tell you what happened. I <clears throat> I feel like I'm I'm a good doctor. I'm always trying to be a better doctor. And I always want to be a traditional doctor, meaning I really care about my doctor-patient relationship. And I, you know, my patients talk to me on my cell phone and I have house calls, not often, but I'll, I'll do these things. And so word gets out that I'll talk to people. And so I commonly will have patients reach out to me about medical issues that have nothing to do with orthopedics. But they just hear that I'm a good doctor and that I'll talk to them. Well, I just got a call from a 37-year-old person who was just given a diagnosis of ALS. For those of you who don't know, ALS is amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, also known as Lou Gehrig's disease, and it's one of the most horrible uh, diseases known to man. It's a disease of the motor cells in the anterior horn of your spinal cord, and you slowly lose the ability to move, your muscles don't work, and then you slowly lose the ability to breathe, and it's it's fatal. And uh, this person got my name, and they live in another state, and they called me, and I was talking to them, and they were telling me how their doctors are not calling them back, 
they can't get the reports that they need, and this person's 37 years old, has some other issues going on in their neck, that they're hoping that is explaining the symptoms and that this diagnosis of ALS is an error. And just talking to this person and telling him, send me all of your information, I'll figure it out. I mean, I'm no expert on ALS, but I'll reach out to my doctor friends, I'll get this information, and I will I will talk to this person and figure out how to get this resolved. But the point is, the doctors that are in front of him, where he lives, are avoiding him. And I know they're avoiding him because I know how doctors think, and nobody wants to sit there and have a very difficult conversation with a young 37-year-old person with their whole life in front of them being given a diagnosis of ALS. And I can see as he's telling me the story of what's happening that they are just flat out not wanting to deal with it. I'm in the same boat. I don't want to have to deal with it either, and I'm forcing myself to do it because he got my name from somebody who said I was a good doctor and I want to live up to that and I want to help this person it's not my skill set talking to people with fatal diseases it's not what I'm good at but I'm going to figure it out you people have got to understand that unless we have a free market healthcare system where you're in control of your own healthcare dollars where you're in control of your doctor where your doctor's fidelity is to you in your well-being we are going to be lost and it's worse than that it's not just your healthcare by controlling your health they can control your behavior on everything else we're seeing it right now the state is making decisions about how we're managing covid it's affecting our travel it's affecting whether our kids are able to go to school or not it's affecting how we go to work it's affecting whether or not we have to wear a mask on our face and listen i don't want to get i don't want to get threatened by my medical board i don't you know i don't want to have my license threatened for even bringing this stuff up so i'm not arguing about what's the proper policy i'm simply saying that we have a state that is telling us these things and we don't have a voice in it anymore we're not able to find a doctor who cares about us directly and who has our best interest at heart nothing demonstrates the failure of government bureaucracy better than the logjam of cars that they have in Fredericksburg, Virginia over this past weekend Uh, you may have heard on I-95 they had people that were stuck on the road for more than 24 hours no food, no water no movement no help People were using this failure. They have the new governor coming in, Yunkin, who apparently is a Republican in Virginia. And the media and social media out there are blaming him. Oh, this new Republican governor caused this problem. He's not even the governor yet. Absolutely unbelievable. Your government cannot even keep your roads running in the wintertime. You're stuck on the road for 24 hours. I can't even imagine that. I would have gotten out, packed my whole family on my back, and hiked all the way from Virginia to Georgia. The government is not good at doing things, and healthcare is too important to cede all power over to them. We have to promote free market medicine. We have to demand it. It has to be an important platform of any politician you elect, and you have to oppose any effort to entrench socialized medicine. I hope I cleared up the doctor-patient relationship better today than I did last week. I feel like I was able to connect dots better. Please give me some feedback on my email, scottbarbermd at gmail.com.
You're listening to the Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. I'm Dr. Scott Barber. Have an amazing day, and I will see you guys next time. The views, opinions, and content of the show hosts and their guests appearing on America's Web Radio are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the station. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.